the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. On this Tuesday morning, the 12th morning of the third month of the year of our Lord, 2019. want to welcome back to the program now. I told you it's a great day when it's Kersenow Day. That's what we've come to know Tuesday as. Uh, Peter Kersenow, Cleveland attorney, U.S. Commissioner on Civil Rights, noted author, uh, as well as uh, the host of the Kersenow Report, which you hear every day at some point or another during the day and a new one every week on AM 1420, The Answer, as well as an adjunct professor. Pete, you teaching classes again? I know you took a little break there for a while. Uh, yeah, I'm still taking a break. I might resume this fall. I still haven't determined that, but um, okay. right now I'm busily writing novels in addition to everything else I'm doing. Okay, very good. And I don't know how you do it all, any of it, to be quite honest with you, but uh, I'm sure you'll be back in the classroom before too long as well. Uh, so, Peter Kirsten, now, uh, Pete, really good to have you. Um, I, before we get into what I know you want to talk about, I, I, I kind of uh, led the show today with previewing our chat based on our conversation yesterday and some of the statistics that I know you have crunched um, about uh, the disciplinary policies that it were enacted under uh, the Obama administration by way of, uh, of racial uh, disparity or perceived racial disparity. But before we go there, did you have any opportunity to take a look at the link that I sent you yesterday about unequal air pollution? <laughs> Pete? I saw it this morning. I, I apologize. I didn't get to it until this morning, uh, people, but I did see let, it. Let me, let, me, let me just tell people what it says, and then if you just have a quick comment on it, because we don't want to spend sure. too much time on it. It, it. This is in the USA Today yesterday. This was in the USA Today and online at USA Today's website. Uh, a new study has found there's a racial gap in air pollution. Whites primarily cause it, and blacks and Hispanics breathe in more of it. Are we seriously? Are we, are we saying that air quality is racist? Blacks and Hispanics breathe in more bad air caused by whites than whites do. Uh, I, I, I thought we had already racialized everything in society, Pete. I didn't know we were going to do it to oxygen. Yeah, right. Well, you know, we're at peak wokeness, I guess. This is the most, one of the most absurd things imaginable. But as you might imagine, just when the rest of the public thinks something is absurd, that absurdity has already been reviewed by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, which is always way ahead of the curve. On this. So as I've I said know. before, if you want to know what the left is up to, uh, five to ten years from now, look at what they're doing at the Civil Rights Commission today, and you get a pretty good idea. Yeah, um, nearly two years ago, we had a hearing on this absurdity. The, um, in fact, the first hearing um, on this was approximately, it was one of my first hearings, it was 17 years ago. But since then, we've had at least one more hearing. There may have been two, but it's on environmental racism or environmental justice. And uh, unfortunately for many of the proponents of this, I mean, but let's face it, this is something that is based on disparate impact theory. That is that blacks and Hispanics purportedly um, are exposed to various pollutants at a higher rate than are whites. Um, that might be true. It may not be true in certain circumstances. It's really a function of a lot of different things, such as the fact that, Sometimes 
plants that produce pollution are located in poorer neighborhoods. But here's the thing that we find out. This is not something, first of all, that's intentional. As if devious whites are putting these, you know, uh, toxic plants in black and Hispanic neighborhoods. That is absolutely not the case. In fact, what we found, as people with common sense know, and, you know, this last study was written by professors, all due respect to professors, sometimes they have a common sense deficiency. But nonetheless, what we find is that some of these plants are the old plants that had been in neighborhoods. Like, for example, I grew up next to Republic Steel. I mean, literally next to Republic Steel back in the day before there was the EPA and it was spewing smoke all over the place. My father worked there. And because he was able to, he didn't have a car at first, he was able to walk there. He had a very good job, made decent income at the time, and we were able to move away from there. That was a net benefit. And the fact of the matter is most of these plants were located in areas that were majority white areas. And then over time, blacks and Hispanics moved there. It's not as if they they were stationed there. But here's one of the funny things, and I could give you a, a whole raft of data that makes this even more absurd. Uh, and I don't think you're listening to that. Yeah, don't do that because I don't want to take away from your larger discussion point that you yeah, wanted to talk about. Today your with, your, with your listeners are smart enough to understand it because they've lived life and they see how these things work. But we had a hearing a little over a year and a half ago on environmental justice. One of the contentions was that coal ash was being deposited in all black areas down in the south and coal ash is a bad news pollutant <clears throat> it's a it's a toxin that produces all form of health maladies uh so this hearing went on and on there were several panels of witnesses all these experts uh what we didn't do was travel down to where the large coal ash repositories were I didn't do it either. Sometimes we have field hearings on these things. We didn't do so in this case. But my colleague, Gail Harriet, the only other conservative on the Liberal Civil Rights Commission, actually traveled down to where this was occurring and discovered that these coal ash plants were actually in all-white neighborhoods. So that really, and then when the report was written up, all my liberal colleagues were presuming that this was in an all-black neighborhood, and lo and behold, we had photos and everything else, and it really kind of punctured the narrative a little bit. So this is uh, the latest... It's amazing what facts can do, isn't it? It it really is. It really is. You know, this kind of stuff happens all the time, where facts contradict the prevailing liberal narrative. But unfortunately, it's the prevailing liberal narrative for a reason, because they have the control over, you know frankly, our culture, our media, and they pervade this nonsense over and over and over again. And uh, the facts, you know, they're only secondary. That's, a, that's very well said. Peter Kirsten now joining us on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, Pete, let's um, let's dive into the main topic uh, that, that you and I uh, had discussed. Um, and and I, I kind of laid out the case um, before you came on, actually in the first hour, talking about uh, the the racial disparities of blacks and whites in schools as it pertains to school discipline and as it pertains to reports to law enforcement and so on and so forth that led to the Obama-era policy in trying to get more black kids kept in school rather than put into the uh, uh, criminal justice system because of crimes that may have committed as students, uh, how it how it very largely led to the circumstances that put Trayvon Martin in Orlando, Florida, or Sanford, Florida, when he had his fatal encounter with uh, George Zimmerman. Um, that's just one anecdote, but um, a lot of people know this story by that story. 
I know that's what you wanted to get into now and to talk about the massive increase in violence in schools because of uh, this Obama-era policy. Why don't you go ahead and take it from there? Yeah, well, thanks very much, Bob. Uh, This is a huge problem because we've had a significant spike in violence in the schools over the last two years, and last year was no exception. Um, By the way, as an aside, you mentioned Trayvon Martin, but... um, Paul Sperry of Real Clear Politics did an investigation. In fact, he contacted me on this also a couple of months back. Uh, actually, it was more than that. It was about six, seven months ago where he determined that uh, Nicholas Cruz, the uh, Parkland shooter, was mm-hmm. also in school as a direct result of this policy. But for this policy, he would have long ago been expelled, probably would have been in the justice system. And there was a wow. you know chance then that he would not have been in the classroom or in class to have perpetrated that mass shooting. Um, and I would just refer people to Paul Sperry's com- column on that. Uh, nonetheless, getting back to the Obama-era policy, uh, the Obama Justice Department and Department of Education issued a joint guidance to schools that said that basically they got to get their suspension numbers and expulsion numbers right. The numbers were pretty extraordinary and lopsided. Blacks, and to a lesser extent Hispanics, were suspended and expelled from school at a far higher rate than whites and Asians were, Um, anywhere from 2.8 times more to four times more, depending on the demographics and everything else like that. But it was pretty extraordinary. It wasn't just by 10%. It was closer to 300%. So the Obama Justice Department put a lot of pressure on these schools to, quote, unquote, get their numbers right. In other words, to make sure that the expulsion and suspension rates weren't wildly divergent on the basis of race and because the Justice Department, you know, has a phalanx of attorneys who would come in and investigate and it takes all types of man hours and hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars of attorneys fees, and they could debar you from receiving federal funds, everybody fell in line immediately and began to get their numbers right. We had a, a full blown hearing on this at the Civil Rights Commission and what we heard was truly astonishing. Uh, we had a lot of administrators and teachers come in, less, fewer administrators than teachers, because the administrators didn't want to uh, upset, you know, the powers that be, whereas the teachers were on the front lines, and literally on the front lines, they were being beaten, uh, they've been subjected to violence, they observed the violence firsthand, and they, many of them, were just furious that this type of moronic policy was being followed. Uh, we had one teacher who was beaten badly, uh, another one who had suffered brain damage, uh, and they had said that they were lo- losing control, they had lost control of the classroom. And by the way, these weren't just white teachers. What we found was that many of the black teachers, because there were more black teachers in, in black schools, were maybe the most apoplectic about this. It was just simply dumb on its face, because what happened is, in order not to ex- have these high suspension and expulsion numbers, they were keeping these miscreants in the schools or in the classrooms when otherwise they wouldn't be there. And that disrupted the learning experience of the students who were there to learn because these people were in the the classrooms threatening them, disrupting the classroom, threatening and beating teachers, classmates. It was horrendous, and it's been going on for several years. Now, just in the last year, Bob, the number of violent incidents in the United States schools, public schools, rose by a staggering 
thousand. That's that's astonishing. That shouldn't be happening in the United States of America. And what we had is an, a couple of black principals testified that one of the problems, and this is common sense, but common sense eludes many people within the federal government, apparently. No doubt. The, the policy kept these disruptive students in the schools, in classrooms. So who was most harmed? The black and Hispanic students, the majority of which were in the schools with these black um, uh uh, individuals who were disrupting the class, those individuals that wanted to learn were having their education disrupted by these students, whereas these students should have been in suspension or expulsion. Now they were disrupting the classrooms and the quote-unquote good students were having their educational experience damaged as a result. The Obama administration kept that policy without blinking whatsoever, despite the copious evidence that was mounting almost immediately after it was instituted that this had a negative effect on not just the safety, but the learning experience of the very groups who are the purported intended beneficiaries. Uh, the I good news imagine, is, Pete, if, if I can interrupt for a second, because I need to get our traffic in here, but I can imagine also that the victims of these violent encounters are also students of color, the same students who are perpetrating our victimizing. Most of them, most of them are, and, but what you also see, and, and the vast majority are, that's true, but you also see that it was almost as if a license had been given and these students knew. These, the, the, the teachers were testifying and the administrators testified at how contemptuous these students were of the entire regime because they knew the teachers couldn't do a thing to them. And it made it worse and worse and worse. And on top of that, uh, many of the bad actors knew that they were protected on the basis of race. And so they took that as license to beat up almost anybody, regardless of what their, wow. their skin color was. Now, the majority of the folks were in black and Hispanic schools, but they thought that this is license now to go after the white and Asian kids, those kids who weren't really suspended or expelled that often. And, um, you know, it was, it, it was something that was truly Orwellian in terms of how the policy was instituted and the result. The good news, Bob, is that, and I'll just say this real quickly, the good news is that the Trump administration just recently announced it's going to rescind the policy, but a lot of quote-unquote woke districts or administrators are going to, they don't have to, just because the federal government doesn't mandate anymore, doesn't mean that they have to rescind it, and they're going to continue doing it. I was going to ask you uh, on the other side of this, what is going to be done now under the Trump administration to change that policy? You kind of started talking about it right now. Let me hold you there. We'll come right back and get a few more thoughts on this from Peter Kirsten now on AM 1420. Um. All right, 10:28. I've only got two good minutes left with Peter Kirsten now. We ran a little long on the first segment there. So, uh, Pete, I want to just ask you about this kind of following up on what you were just talking about it's my understanding that in some districts including cleveland school districts like cleveland okay crimes committed by students against teachers are are largely if not exclusively unreported per board of education policy when crimes are committed against teachers they prefer that the boe police meaning like school resource officers handle everything in house and these things do not get reported to cpd and track so the stats are actually uh, not nearly as bad as the prop well let me rephrase the problem is far worse than the stats would indicate because they do not want all of these crimes against teachers being reported 
I don't know about Cleveland specifically, Bob, but you're right that that is a dynamic that was reported to us. I remember that uh, I think there was at least one witness who said that they did want to look. Everyone's trying to get their numbers right, uh, so when that happens, you get distorted reporting. You get reporting that shows less of a stark disparity in disciplinary numbers. So I think that's probably the case for some school districts, if not a lot of school districts across the country. I can't speak directly to Cleveland. What I do know is that New York City, for example, Philadelphia, uh, I think it's Minneapolis-St. Paul, they have serious issues with respect to this. They are now just waking up to it, despite the fact that we've seen this happening for the last several years. But, you know, after a while, parents start saying, what the heck is going on here? I'm sending kids, my kids, to a dangerous place. They're supposed to be learning, and they're going to a place where, you know, when they come back, they may have been beaten over the head, you know, arm broken. I used to, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I, you know, we had gotten them at the Civil Rights Commission. There was some significant number, something like uh, a million school days worth of kids not going to school because they were too afraid of getting beat up. And by a million school days, what I mean by that is uh, on any given day, some some students decided not to go to school because they were afraid of the environment there, and that added up to well over a million school days missed in the last year because of the fear of violence. This, this is lunatic. It's bad news. If any schools are going to continue this boneheaded policy after the mandate from the Justice Department has been alleviated, someone really needs to hold them to account. Peter Kirstenau with some very important statistics uh, about our schools and about the kind of violence that continues to be spread within them because of Obama-era Justice Department uh, guidance and policies. Pete, uh, this is something we'll have to dig into when we have more time because um, I, I feel like you've only given us the you know the scratching of the surface on this. I know you and your colleagues there at the uh, Civil Rights Commission have a lot more de- details, so we'll talk about that more the next time we get together. Sound okay? 16 days to opening day, Bob, and you know what? I'm going to start a countdown to the Browns opening day as soon as they get their scheduled dates set, because I'm kind of getting excited about it. You know, I, mean, I, I think we're all starting to feel a little dangerous. I, I told I like it, and I told Hewitt yesterday uh, off the air. Uh, I think the Browns now that Antonio Brown is gone from the Steelers and Le'Veon Bell is gone from the Steelers, I think their implosion is imminent, and I think the Browns are going to be the AFC North favorites in almost every publication next this coming season. I like it. Exactly I like it. Pete, thank you, my friend. God bless. Take Appreciate care. you. That's Peter Kirsten now on AM 1420. The answer, we are guest free the rest of the way. So if you want to be heard, dial now, 216-901-0945. Back after this. Progressive Democrats, please be aware you have now entered the place where political correctness goes to die. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yeah, I know it's my time to talk, but I just like the music, so I'm just going to chill for a minute. <laughs> Sometimes our uh, DJ Jim Lucio uh, just hits me with a bumper music song that just, I don't know, it grabs the mood, it, it, it captures the mood, it, it does whatever it does that makes me just want to listen. Uh, I don't know why. And it depend, it's a totally different kind of music, I don't know, but this music just grabbed my mood right now, and that's all I want to do is sit back and listen for a few minutes. But I know we are talk radio, not music radio, so I'm going to have to stifle my uh, musical urge here and uh, get back to business. It's 1036. Listen to the music, indeed. Whoa, whoa. Um, 
Phone lines are open at 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. If you want to respond to what you heard with Peter Kersenow, you can do that. If you want to talk about Tucker Carlson, the attack on conservatives, you can do that. If you want to talk about the AOC nonsense and the uh, Green New Deal exposed by the Greenpeace founder, uh, uh, co-founder anyway, Patrick Moore, longtime executive at Greenpeace, we can do that. Uh, a lot of really important things to do in the last half hour of the program. We'll go to the phones now first, and it uh, looks like it's going to be Jan in Brexville up on AM 1420 The Answer. Hi, Jan. Go ahead. Hey, Bob. Hello. Um, Hi, Jan. I, uh, I graduated from Cleveland Public Schools when it was still a good school system. I then uh, taught in Cleveland Public Schools from 1971 to 81, and this was going on even back then, but not to the degree I heard Peter Kersenow talking about. I'd like to know, maybe if he comes on again another time, how can we even in the greater Cleveland community get Cleveland Public Schools and their board to comply with uh, doing something about this and not just keeping uh, what's going on in-house? You're talking about the violence violence in schools overall or the violence against teachers? Against teachers, against teachers, and just not being able to teach in a classroom when... The kids are holding the teacher hostage. In other words, you yeah. know, you know. No, don't believe me, Jan. I do know. I've um, I've been in radio now for twenty one years, and um, I've told this story for twenty one years. That my last year of teaching was um, a year in which what what Peter is describing happened to me. Um, that's when I knew I was not going to be long for the classroom because I knew how I felt about it. When I had students, um, uh, high school students challenging me to touch them to uh, in order to expel them from my classroom you know because they would be doing the disruptive things that interfere with the learning of the other yeah. students as peter described uh these poor kids are up in the front trying to listen to me trying to engage and have discussion on the material and these ones in the back are doing their thing and you know ordering them out uh, and then having them walk right up to my desk and and telling me i want you put me out um, knowing full well that if I so much tugged on a shirt sleeve to walk them to the door, I'm going to be the one who is in trouble uh, mm-hmm. for physically you know, accosting a student. And once I knew then that they had no fear whatsoever of anything, anything disciplinary or consequential or um, uh, retributive that could be done to them, I, I, I knew that this is not a learning environment that I can facilitate. And that was my last year teaching. And um, so I know it's good. And this was in the mid-90s, by the way. So I know what you're talking about. Um, and as far as the violence against teachers, now it's more than just challenging teachers, but them attacking teachers. Um, all I know is that in Cleveland public schools, from what I have learned, um, the statistics that show crimes against teachers are just a fraction of what really happens because they keep those in-house. They do not report those to the, uh, to the actual, you know, their, their superiors at the police, even resource officers have to keep everything in-house and let the Board of Education handle those disciplinary things because they don't want the numbers, as Peter said, to reflect uh, a racial disparity in the number of people who are being either A, suspended, B, expelled, or C, referred for criminal prosecution uh, to to the police for their crimes committed against teachers. I have no idea how teachers could possibly want to work in that environment. I don't either. And I would have to say back when I was teaching, the administration in each school had a a role to play in this, 
and some of them were stronger than others in uh, taking disciplinary measures against students who would disrupt, but they're not all that, you know, it just depends on what school, you you know, you were in. I was in many schools because I I taught a subject that I traveled to many schools, but, uh, yeah, but I'd like to know what, because, well, you know, Cleveland died, I think, when the school system died, (laughs) and I think that has a lot to do with what's, uh, you know, this, this, it's not just industry and all that, but it has to do with people moving to the suburbs when they didn't have good education in the public schools anymore. Well, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, and, and that's the, that's the most troubling part about this is, well, people will say that it's the education isn't good for them, that the, that the schools are failing these people, and that's why they had to leave and move to the, to the suburbs. When, when the truth of the matter, I, I've always felt this way, it's not the quality of the schools, it's the quality of the families that are sending the kids into the schools. Um, the kids who Partly are, that, but it's the discipline in the schools, too. If you cannot discipline properly, then it's what you were saying and why you were well, well, teaching. Yeah, but, but, I, but I, again, Jan, I would go back to the home. If you, if you can't discipline in the schools because of the, the way the rules are written, then you need the parents to discipline them at home. And when there are no parents at home that have any interest in discipline whatsoever, the schools are, 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 are helpless. The teachers, the administrators, what are they supposed to do? Uh, if they're not allowed to expel, if they're not allowed to get rid of these bad influences on the other kids there, um, what are teachers to do? You, you have to rely upon parents to actually be the ones who, who are, um, you know, enforcing the most discipline here. And, and, you know, you, sadly in Cleveland, we all know this, um, in certain demographics in particular, um, there aren't two parents in the home. Uh, and, and oftentimes the one parent in the home isn't really doing any parenting either. And these kids are going in and pretty much, you know, running their own lives and doing things their own way, standing up to teachers. They don't have any authority figures that are going to get on their case at home if they get in trouble at school. So to me, it's a, you know, it, it's, it, there, there are, there are problems on both ends, but to me, the, right. the, the, the front end is the, is the house. You're right. If the if parents, if the parents the would support teachers, if the parents would support teachers, schools would be able to implement discipline more effectively. That's true. I agree. I agree. It it comes from it's uh, two sides of the coin. Both yeah. are very important, but it's the the home environment, and that's truly the uh, the first teacher uh, role. That you know, the parent is the first teacher. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely I, right. But I'd still Jan, like to know what I, we I, can do. You know, I, I, I would like to too. And you know what? I'm going to open that forum up, Jan. Thanks so much for the call to other teachers, educators, or parents about you know uh, how that can be handled. I, I, I just to kind of dovetail on what. <clears throat> Jen and I were just talking about a few years ago, I don't know, two years ago maybe, when was the big Strongsville teacher strike? Um, I want to say it was uh, I want to say it was two years ago. It was a really long and it was really kind of a, a vitriolic one. There was a lot of really uh, harsh words uh, and, and accusations and things said on both sides. But it was about two years ago, I think it was. And I remember talking about it on this program um, in these terms because one of the things that the teachers union would declare as to why they deserved the raises and benefits and whatever the terms of their contract that they were fighting over were, was the quality of the schools. And they were talking about how great the uh, the graduation rates were, the you know cumulative ACT and SAT scores, and yada, yada. We, we do such a great job, we deserve this money or these benefits, whatever these terms were. And I remember 
as people continue to attack Cleveland schools and say Cleveland schools are failing the kids, Cleveland schools are failing the students, Cleveland schools uh, are you know get an academic F from the state on the state report card, right? And look at the difference between we the way we teach out here in Strongsville and the way they teach uh, there in the inner city. And I said this then on the radio, and I'll repeat it now. I don't want to pick on Strongsville. That happened to be the impetus for the discussion then because of the strike. <clears throat> but um, I would say this about a lot of the high-performing suburban districts. If you take the entire faculty, teaching staff, in Cleveland schools or a Cleveland school and put it in Strongsville for two years to teach those kids and take the entire faculty of Strongsville teachers, or again, I don't want to pick on Strongsville, or you know, pick a, pick a you know, really high-achieving high and high-performing school district anywhere in greater Cleveland in the suburbs. But you take that staff and put it in Cleveland schools, teaching those kids for two years. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think <clears throat> that the students in the Cleveland schools now being taught by the suburban teachers with suburban resources and so on and so forth, are going to suddenly rise up and be high achievers? And that the kids who are in the Strongsville school, now being taught by Cleveland public school teachers, are going to suddenly fall to the bottom? No. Because it's not about the teachers or even the buildings or the resources. It's about family support. I've always said this, and I'll continue to say it. Those Strongsville kids are still going to learn, and they're going to do well because their parents are both in the house, and somebody is pushing. Homework done? Let me see it. Your project done? When's it due? Well, let me see the progress you've made so far. No, you're not going to the movies. No, you're not going to the game. That's due tomorrow. You're staying home and finishing your homework. That parenting is what leads to school achievement in their kids. Because all teachers, I mean, obviously there are outliers when I say all teachers are good teachers. But, but faculties in entirely different teaching environments um, are, are, are oftentimes completely helpless. And in other times, they can do no wrong because this family support and the parental support, you know, if I get a phone call, if I'm a parent and I get a phone call uh, in one of these, you know, nice suburban districts from a teacher who said so-and-so was acting out and did this, that, or the other thing, I'm kicking the kid's butt metaphorically speaking, when they get home and they're never going to be, repeat that behavior in school. How nice is that for a teacher to, to, to have? How easy is it to present material, engage in deep academic discussion with kids who are actually forced to listen because their moms and dads care? Now compare that to the teachers in the Cleveland schools. I don't care if they have the newest whiteboards if they have the newest, um, uh, um, uh, you know, advanced technology labs, robotics lab, and so on and so forth, I, I don't care how nice all of that stuff is. If the kids aren't listening because mom and dad don't have squat to say to them, if the kids aren't doing homework because there's no mom looking over the shoulder at the kitchen table making sure this gets done, those kids are going to fail, and it will not be the fault of the Cleveland school teacher. And if there's fighting in the classrooms, 
And schools are calling home to say, you've got a three-day suspension for your son for attacking another student or for, uh, you know, assaulting a teacher or whatever, and the parents aren't home or the parents don't care? Nothing is going to change. I will always believe that the difference between a successful school and a failing school is not in the most advanced smart boards or the most advanced technology. It's not going to be in the higher-degreed teachers either. The difference between a successful school and a failing school is not in the school. It's in the homes. The communities determine the success of the school. I promise you, teachers at Cleveland Public Schools who have to fight for their lives every day could be just as effective at turning out college-bound students if they were teaching in a suburban environment as those suburban teachers are. And I promise you, those suburban teachers who are so successful and demanding higher pay and so on and so forth because of the success of their school would be failures if they were forced to teach in an environment where there was no parental support, no family structure, no home life, no um, uh, none of those things that are that are lacking from the Cleveland public schools. Jan, you got me off on a tangent there on a rant. <laughs> I enjoyed the conversation with you. I really did. But that's that to me is the true success or uh, failure of a school. It's it's not determined within the, the the walls of the of the building. It's it's determined within the walls of the home. TJ in Cleveland is next. Hi, TJ. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, Bob. You know, Bob, I was a product of the Cleveland public school system. Mm-hmm. You know, in the uh, 60s, I went to a Holy Name for nine years, then transferred over to South High. And I'm going to tell you, back in the 60s, the public schools were just as good as the Catholic schools. In fact, the Cleveland school system was rated so high back in the 60s mm-hmm. that other cities would come here to model after them. What killed the Cleveland school system was a liberal judge with his busing. And people started to leave the city, not because of the quality of the schools, but because of safety issues. They didn't want to put little Johnny or Mary on a bus and send them on the other side of town into perhaps a bad neighborhood. So anybody that could afford it picked up and left. So it had nothing to do with the quality of the schools. It was a safety issue. And the liberals never could comprehend this. Without safety and security, you have nothing. That's exactly right. You cannot learn. You cannot present a quality learning environment if kids are scared when they every time they walk in. Absolutely right. And one other quick point that uh, with these green weenies with their uh, you know uh, uh, green plan, yeah. You know what they don't realize is that everything we see, our computers, our cell phones, our electric cars, are based on petroleum byproducts called plastic. How are you going to replace the plastic in your cell phone, your computer? You know, I would like to see an experiment done with, say, a small town. Let's say Oberlin. Let's go completely green, Oberlin, and show us if it works. Make everybody get an electric car in Oberlin. You're, uh, you start, are, uh, start rebuilding all your buildings green in Oberlin. Right. Let's yeah, ban and, and all the, plastic the part about petroleum products. The part about pla- yeah, the part about plastic that you're bringing up here, TJ, is spot on. In fact, you're the second person to bring that up to me today. Uh, the first one was in uh, uh, was on uh, Twitter, and somebody pointed out you cannot get rid of fossil fuels in this in this country the way, the way they're talking about it, unless you are ready to get rid of uh, all of the plastics. Uh, and, and others that, that, uh, you have to drill for oil to, you know, drill, we, oil and petroleum are huge, huge parts of the creation of plastics. The plastics injury industry, rather, would, uh, would absolutely be stopped, would be halted if we stopped drilling for oil 
and using fossil fuels because that's exactly how, how those things are uh, uh, are made. That is 100% correct. Nobody talks about that. Brett is who it was. That's right. It was Brett on Twitter who said, you stop drilling, you kiss goodbye, uh, all plastic and synthetic materials as well. So, yeah, the, it, it, what, what Patrick Moore said was, was spot on, but there are even more great examples of why something like a Green New Deal is the most ridiculously absurd resolution or bill or suggestion or whatever that anybody in Congress has come up with, maybe, in the uh, in the history of this country. Let me get a time out and come right back with a call or two more right after this on AM 1423. 10.55, final segment of the uh, broadcast is always a short one, but let's make the most of it. We'll go to Joe, who's in Cleveland on AM 1420, The Answer. Joe, go right ahead. I don't believe it. I actually agreed with you and TJ on something. What's that? About the Cleveland schools. But that's not what I wanted to about call about. how it about. used to be good in the 60s or about the reasons why it's so bad now? Well, I think the thing is, two parents in the home. Yes. You know? Yeah, I mean, no, yeah, I don't no, know what no you personally. I'm going to say, you know, we don't agree on much. But you're a good dad and a good husband. And that's made all the difference in the world for your two kids. Well, that's very nice. And I, I would agree with everybody. I mean, I mean, it is. You know, no kid has a chance. And I don't want to get on another tangent here and rant, but thank you, Joe, for saying that. Of no course. kid has a chance if they don't have somebody in their homes, you know, cracking the whip over them and disciplining them and making sure they go to school and get things done rather than yeah. just going to school and causing problems for other kids. It's just, you don't have a shot at it. But anyway, what else? Well, absolutely. And the thing about it is Patrick Moore isn't associated with Greenpeace anymore. I know. That's why I call He's him been out of the loop there. I looked at Greenpeace, and they have a real big issue about his statement. And I just thought that maybe that should be put out well, what, there. What, what's the, the issue? Uh, Tell me what it is. Well, what, the what issue is he uh, doesn't. They have a whole bunch of things. They have a whole bunch of things. It starts off with Patrick Moore does not represent Greenpeace. And uh, he's well, who been, cares about that? Uh, what I mean is, what's wrong with his statement? I mean, everything he said is true. I don't think he said. Well, the thing about it is, trucks, he uh, spoke what, Well, but. right. The problem is, I am believe in 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 new energies, but I know it's probably going to take a long time to switch over to them before there are some flaws that are taken out. I know that. Yeah, but it's Joe, not Joe it's not easy. just Joe. Joe, not a long time, <clears throat> ever time, forever no, time, it will. unless you literally, truly want to go backwards in time and bring mm-hmm. and bring um, um, uh, bring foods to to the people in the masses in the cities by way of covered wagon. You are going to need to bring them in by way of truck, and trucks cannot run on electric cell batteries. They have to be run with internal combustion engines. Well, and, that's and, spoken and, with say and maybe tractors an need, and tractors need attitude about. Uh, I don't. I, I think you're. I think you're. I think you're reverting scientifically. It's possible. We just don't know it yet. I mean, think of the world we live in today. Well, we couldn't have had that. If you would have told me 30 years ago that the world we live in today we're going to live in, I wouldn't have believed it about technology. I think the same thing is true with wind. I mean, we already know solar can be done che- cheaper than, than coal. Uh, economists have said that. You're talking about wind power or solar power that mm-hmm. might power a house, not a plant. 
not a manufacturing mm-hmm. plant that would that would produce all of these electrical batteries for all of the vehicles that you think can be produced in such a way. I, th- I think somebody brought it up before. To to even consider generating enough electric electricity with solar power to run even you know an hour uh, of power of the of the of the entirety of the United States, you would have to cover the state of California, the full geographical size of California with solar panels, literally abutting one another. I mean, <laughs> one touching the next, touching the next, the entire state, to run the country uh, with all of its energy needs for an hour. It is not only not possible, it is not, uh, it, it's not even within the realm of thought, of reasonableness. It's just silliness. And that's why we should not be considering nonsense like the Green New Deal. So they can disavow Patrick Moore all they want, but uh, Patrick Moore is right. Thanks for the call. We're done. My Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.